You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stowville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, the impact of the pandemic on the job market and especially for employees with disabilities. Also ahead, the challenges facing students with special needs as the new school year gets underway and first aid for work, home, and play from St. John Ambulance. But first, a second wave of COVID-19 is possible, according to some experts, and probable based on research by others. The words second wave are striking fear in the hearts and minds of many here in Canada, around the world, and even in York Region. Joining us now on the feed to help put everything in perspective is Dr. Stephen Hoffman, Director of Global Strategy Lab and Professor of Global Health and Political Science at York University. Thank you for being with us on the feed. Thanks for having me. So is a second wave possible or probable? It's probable. Uh, The reason is uh, we have so much virus still circulating around the world. We have new cases popping up in Canada. It's just probably just a matter of time before we see quite a few more cases come, uh, which would then we call it a, a second wave. We're seeing an increase in certain pockets of uh, certain provinces. Is that the start of a second wave? It could be. I think where we're most likely to see the start of a second wave is um, slightly later into the fall when people start to uh, be inside more often because we know that um, this virus does transmit more in closed spaces as opposed to outside. And so as a result, uh, when the weather gets a bit colder, people are inside, whether in school or in other places, that's probably where we're going to start to see an increase that would lead to what we would call a second wave of this virus. So as we open up more of our economy and people are entering buildings and spending more time inside, even though we're still in summer, we've got kids going back to school in a classroom setting again where they're inside, indoors for hours at a time. Is the likelihood of greater numbers of COVID-19 even more so uh, at this point because of just the movement of human beings and the coming together of human beings now that things have reopened. That's exactly right. So I think what we saw is last spring, there was the uh, implementing various layers of protection. Some are about uh, closing off different kinds of businesses. Others were about encouraging everyone to stay two meters apart. But as we start to lift some of those things, like reopening schools, uh, like reopening other businesses, uh, that's good news in the sense that our society can get back on track, but it increases the risk of transmission. That being said, there's nothing preordained about a second wave. We can definitely avoid it if we all take the necessary precautions, like staying two meters apart, wearing masks when we aren't able to do so, and washing our hands. But it is likely that we are going to see a second wave come at some point, so, and we have to prepare for it. So in other words, we are able to try and prevent it, but we also must prepare for that. Is, is that correct, Dr. Hoffman? That's exactly right. I think that all of the actions that each of us take every day are going to be determining first whether we have a second wave, but then if we do, how bad is it going to be? And what we saw last spring is that if it does get bad, we need to start taking more stringent measures, many of which we don't like. (laughs) And so in that respect, I think it's in, in all of our best interest to try to do the best we can, washing our hands, staying two meters apart, following public health guidance, and doing everything that we can to support this collective effort. You are uh, very experienced in in health and and global situations, having worked uh, as an advisor for the UN, uh, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General at that time. You also were an advisor to the World Health Organization. Did you know that this pandemic was coming? 
Well, it's only a, it was only a matter of time before a pandemic like this happened. Uh, a lot of my own research was exactly um, about this kind of thing, about, for example, when that pandemic inevitably happens, uh, what would it look like and how should we be responding? Um, I think the, the clear answer is yes, and indeed uh, this pandemic isn't as bad as it could have been, and the next one might actually be worse. I think the key is that uh, we weren't fully prepared for a pandemic like this um, in Canada, but frankly, every country in the world wasn't prepared. And so the good news, though, is that we're going to be able to learn a lot from this pandemic and ideally make sure that we're much better prepared for future ones that come our way. And were governments around the world listening to the alarm bells being sounded by people like you, by experts like you, that a pandemic was inevitable and was coming? Well, uh, I don't think any governments in the world listened as, as hard as it probably should have <laughs> to that threat. Um, I think what we've seen here is that um, governments are responding, and many governments, including ours in Canada, I think have been doing a, a very good job. Uh, I think, though, with the benefit of actually seeing and experiencing this pandemic and seeing how much it costs our well-being, our economies, our health, that I anticipate there will be much more robust preparations for future pandemics that are likely to come our way. And so I think people were listening before, but I think we're going to listen a lot harder now that we've all experienced this collective uh, experience together. You, my heart sank when just moments ago you talked about it being possibly worse uh, the next time around. Are you talking about a separate pandemic or are you talking about the second wave? Oh, I was referring to a separate pandemic that uh, will inevitably come at some point in the future. Uh, I think the second wave hopefully will be less bad than the first wave. And the reason I say that is because with the first wave, we just didn't know very much about the virus. We didn't know about exactly how it spread. We didn't have emergence of some treatments that might work. But that's starting to change, right? So we now we, we know how this, this virus spreads. We don't know everything, but we know a lot more. We know that, okay, actually wearing a mask can be helpful to stop the spread if you, have, if you don't have symptoms yet, but if you are able to spread it to other people. A mask can be helpful there. We know that we should be staying two meters apart. And so because of that additional knowledge that was derived from science and research, it means we'll be able to better respond if a wave two or a third wave or fourth wave comes our way. But it also means we'll be able to be more targeted with our interventions. Because in the first wave, when you just don't know how the virus is spreading, you had to adopt society-wide interventions. Hopefully, with the second wave or later waves, we can be much more focused. At least that's the hope. Let's unfurl the global map, if you will. So the current statistics, countries with the most COVID-19 cases right now, the U.S., India, Brazil, Russia. So that's North America, Asia, and two in South America. Then we look at the countries with the least number of cases, uh, St. Kitts, Greenland, Western Sahara and Anguilla. So three of the four just mentioned are islands and the numbers are so low. So what does that tell you when you look at the geography of the spread of the virus? Well, I, the number one predictor of whether a country has more cases of COVID-19 is going to be the size of its population. So I think when you mentioned those earlier countries, India, the United States, Russia, these are big countries. Other countries like Greenland, much smaller, so they're going to have fewer cases. But when you look at uh, the cases per capita, uh, on the basis of how many people are in those countries, we still see countries like the United States have an extraordinarily high number of cases. And that's ironic, actually, because, and it's unexpected, because the United States was likely the country that was best prepared for a pandemic. It has fantastic scientific capacity. It invests so much uh, money per person into healthcare. It has leaders who are in the public health fields having such reputations for being excellent in their respective fields. But it highlights that having science, having public health leaders, not enough to confront a pandemic. Pandemics are political, and uh, it depends on having the right political leadership to steward and lead collective efforts to confront these kinds of challenges. And so in the United States, 
It was a country that was expected to be able to respond the best and yet has mounted one of the most challenged responses. So that is, I think, one of the most interesting and devastating stories coming out of this pandemic. And a lot of people would point the finger at President Donald Trump, speaking of whom he is at this point uh, trying to broadcast to the world that he, he will and the country, the United States, will have a vaccine very soon. We also are hearing that a questionable country like Russia, they rolled out uh, their data for a a vaccine, all very positive, but it was met with uh, great negativity from experts around the world. Now there seems to be a change of heart on that, that there may be some merit to their vaccine research. Where do you stand on all of this? Well, the early results from some of the vaccine candidates does indeed look positive. Uh, That's good news for all of us because a vaccine is likely going to be the way that we're all going to get out of this pandemic um, in a good way. So we want those vaccines to be shown to be effective. That being said, uh, at this stage, it's still so early. These are all phase one or phase two trials. So really at this point, these studies are really just trying to show that taking the vaccine is not a deadly thing. (laughs) That's what a phase one is really about. Like, does this vaccine cause harm? And this phase two is really about does it theoretically um, mount some kind of biological response that we want to see in people. The good news is the studies thus far for several vaccine candidates are showing some positive early signs, but it's still so early. We're quite far away um, from a vaccine um, being shown to be effective and frankly even just safe. And so I think trumpeting uh, that there's going to be a vaccine by November 1st, or in the case of Russia, it's already been approved for use. That's quite early and not something that um, scientists or doctors around the world would want to see happen. Uh, instead, what we really need are those phase three trials that really can show us, do these vaccines work? And if they do, we need to then manufacture them as fast as possible to get them into as many people um, as possible, because that's how we're going to get out of this together. I have a non-scientific question for you from me, a layperson. So if there can be a COVID-19 test, why can't there be a vaccine created as well? With the data needed for the test, why can't there be a vaccine created? Well, uh, we have actually created about 150 different vaccine candidates uh, that might work but they might not work. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, indeed, there are some companies that have developed their vaccine candidates as early as February. So um, I think for, uh, the question is a great one because it really highlights that to develop a vaccine itself, when you have the virus, we ha- our science allows us to actually do that quite quickly. Now, of course, there's different ways of doing it, and we need to figure out which one will actually work. But what takes the time is showing that it works. Because with vaccines, there has been, um, there, like, like any kind of therapeutic or, or frankly anything, uh, we just don't know if it works unless we put it through a randomized controlled trial. And so what we need to do is make sure with something like a vaccine that we both give it to, we randomly give it to some people, we randomly don't give it to others, and see who is more likely to uh, get uh, COVID-19 and indeed what are their outcomes going to be if they do get COVID-19. And so that kind of a study is the only way we're going to conclusively know whether a vaccine works and ensure that it doesn't cause more harm than good. And without it, we just can't make those kind of conclusions. I want to circle back to the second wave, which you say is probable as opposed to possible. How do we psychologically and physically prepare for this without, if you don't mind me saying, and again, in layperson's language, without freaking out? No, I think it's such a good uh, question. I, I mean, I think the first thing is that we all need to think about what can we each do to address this pandemic? Uh, how can we make sure we stay two meters apart from people? How do we make sure that we wear a non-medical mask if we're in an environment where we are closer to each other, or if we're indoors? Uh, how do we make sure that we wash our hands throughout the day and do so for 20 seconds each time? That's the first thing. And by having that focus on how we can each contribute to address this pandemic, ideally that will give each of us a sense of more control. That part of the trajectory of this pandemic in Canada will just depend on the actions of Canadians, and all of us are part of that. 
The other, though, is recognizing that we might come to a place where some of those layers of protection that have recently been lifted might actually have to be reinstated. So, for example, we may at some point have to close schools again. We may have to close certain businesses. And so mentally thinking about that scenario and planning for it should ideally help all of us if that scenario does end up happening. Dr. Stephen Hoffman, Director of Global Strategy Lab and Professor of Global Health and Political Science at York University, thank you for your time and your insights. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, the pandemic, the job market, and the disabled. That story is next. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. COVID-19 has not only changed the workplace, but also increased job loss, particularly for the disabled. Jim Lang with that story. Well, as everyone would know, COVID-19 has affected all walks of life, all segments of society. But unfortunately, one of the forgotten segments of society are people with disabilities. And a recent study by Stats Canada really highlighted some of the issues facing people with disabilities in Ontario, in Canada, dealing with COVID-19. To talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking to a longtime advocate for people with disabilities, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, David Onley. David, how are you? Very well, Jim. How are you? Well, good. I was, I was a little shocked. 36%, yeah. according to StatsCan, of people with disabilities reported temporary or permanent job loss since March. That's a staggering number, David. It, it is, especially when you compound it with the reality that the percentage of uh, individuals with disabilities, the unemployment level, let's put it that way, of individuals with disabilities is at least 25% by the strictest definition, and it, it's closer to over 40% by a more expanded definition of unemployment, uh, and that would be, you know, the, the hard reality, far, far worse than the uh, depression, shall we say. So w- when you take into account the, the totality of the number of people in Canada with disabilities who are employed, it's far below every other minority group in our society, and that minority group, the persons with disabilities, have had a 36% job loss. It's just, it's really, it's really unbelievable. It, it, it pushes the total number of people with disabilities who are uh, unemployed now uh, well over 50%. That, that will be their next number crunching exercise, I'm sure, by the way. But, David, this is, this is what I, I'm gobsmacked hearing these numbers and yeah. thinking about this, that it's 2020, we have a very touchy-feely yeah. prime minister who seems to be in touch with everything, so how does this happen? Well... You know, if I had the answer to that, um, I'd sell the book, a DVD series, um, you know, make a movie and uh, retire in six months. Uh, It's hard to say except that uh, government collectively has failed to lead by example. Uh, All the necessary steps that the federal government have had to take, and this goes back multiple governments, we're not talking about just Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper or Jean Chrétien or Brian Mulroney. We're going back to 1981 when there was a federal House of Commons committee, which people can look up uh, online. Uh, wait, please, until this interview is done. Um, but you can look up online and see this report. that This laid it out, a blueprint on how to proceed, and it was just never acted upon. And, you know, similarly, there have been three consecutive reviews of the Accessibility Act for Ontarians with Disabilities, the AODA, uh, first by Charles Beer, uh, five years after the act came into effect, and then Mayo Moran, the Vice Provost of Trinity College at the U of T, uh, and then mine that came out in uh, 2019. And, you know, very specific recommendations were made. And, and where government has failed collectively, and I, I now loop this together with many, not all, but many municipalities, um, 
that they too have failed to take one very important step, and that is to employ those with disabilities in public-facing positions so that the general public doesn't just see people in wheelchairs or like myself when I'm out on my electric scooter, people in wheel in scooters or walking with canes. Uh, they don't see them like, like that when they go to Service Ontario or when they go to any municipal office, that they actually see those with disabilities in positions of employment. It's a trickle-down effect. The example I use, by the way, and this relates to banks, I've used this for years, you know, if you think of your local branch, you think of any branch that you've been into in your lifetime, you have seen every single minority there is in our culture, by race, by color, by ethnicity, different accents, different uh, attire. Have you ever seen a person with an obvious disability working in a public position in a bank? Never. Never. No. Neither have I. And how many times have you or I been in banks? Thousands and thousands yeah. of times in our lives. And, I, I, you know, it's a stump the band question. And, you know, I acknowledge that various banks uh, do hire persons with disabilities, but it's in the headquarters. Nobody in public sees them. And so, you know, I go back to my uh, television career at City TV, 22 years. You've been in television. Yeah, I don't know who your first quote-unquote hero was. Mine was Walter Cronkite, <laughs> going back to a completely different era. But I, as a kid, but I never, I never thought that I could, as a disabled kid, that I could ever be in television news uh, because I didn't see anybody with a disability on news. And, you know, it's just part of human nature, I think. I think it really, really is. And so the one thing that government could do and should do and should do right now is proactively uh, look at folks, for instance, those who are on ODSP, who are only getting $1,169 a month. Many of them, if not the majority of them, are employable people. Well, turn them into taxpayers. Hire them. Put them into public-facing positions where all of us can see each other. Persons with disabilities are the only minority group that government does not hire and put into public-facing positions. There's quotas for everything else, every other range of personality that you can imagine there's specifications for. It, you know, many times it's written into the contracts, mm -hmm. into the job applications, the jobs that are posted online, I should say, or announced in public, that they're looking for a specific type. And then, you know, they will drop in the phrase about a person with a disability, but... You just don't see it. You know, to play devil's advocate, I'm sure people listening to the interview, David, are going, yeah. well, you know, it's tough times and uh, there's a cost involved. But I, I look deeper at the numbers and the actual cost to make a business accommodating to someone with disabilities is quite minimal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the statistic that's been quoted for uh, years and years and years is under $500. There's a really specific reason for that, and that is that, in, in the most instances, the vast majority of instances, the person who's applying for the job already has made the accommodation. My accommodation is wearing long leg braces and or using a scooter mm -hmm. if I'm out in public. Other people, their accommodation is a wheelchair or a screen reader. You know, I mean, we just don't, we've got the questions backwards in a sense. It's not that the, the so how many workplaces actually need accommodation. It's the understanding that the vast majority of persons with disabilities, they're out there trying to get the position because they have made the accommodations themselves. And then if there is some architectural barrier or design barrier, again, typically it's less than $500. Speaking with David Donnelly, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, longtime advocate for people with disabilities in the province and in the country. And, and as we wrap up, David, I, I, I think about your previous comment about that visualization that people seeing someone with disability mm -hmm. doing a job and all of a sudden becomes the new norm. And I think yeah. about the faces of the people in the Ontario legislature in Ottawa and Parliament Hill. And I, I don't see a lot of people with visible disabilities in positions of power in politics in this country. 
It's very true, and it's a chicken and an egg situation. And unfortunately, um, you know, what comes first? Um, I, I remember talking with, uh, with Dave Penner, who is the appointment secretary for uh, Stephen Harper, and he talked about um, an individual, um, Stephen Fletcher, the former MP from uh, Manitoba, who was rendered a quadriplegic after his vehicle hit uh, an animal, um, which came through the windshield. And they said that uh, Dave said that they made far more progress, and and Parliament Hill became so much more accessible upon his arrival in the Parliament because they had to make the accommodations. You go, well, why didn't you guys just do it before? You've been told to do it since 1981, you know. <laughs> but uh, until there was a reason to do it, they just didn't do it. And now it's it's fully accessible. You know, it's in, in, inside. I mean, any person using a wheelchair or a scooter who became a, an MP would be able to navigate Parliament Hill. Um, you know, I, I, I take it back to a, a hiring situation where uh, in the United States, Walgreens transformed one of their uh, distribution centers into be f- being fully accommodating for individuals with disabilities, and specifically the workstations were made so that they could lower the counters so that a person with a wheelchair could work at the counter. And so they did, and started hiring persons in wheelchairs. What was the first thing that happened? The able-bodied people who had been standing for years and years and years said, this isn't fair. We want workstations where we can sit ourselves. And so they did. <laughs> so it's a true story. You just you have and to so laugh, we, though. It's so ridiculous. Oh, it is. It is ridiculous. You know, and uh, I mean, if folks want to see what can be done, and this will be after your show is finished, um, of course, I always like to give that qualifier. Yes, thank you. Just go to YouTube and, and type in Walgreens Accessible Workplace. There's Dozens and dozens and dozens of videos, uh, and it's just head shaking because you come away from looking at those videos and you go, "Yep, it's it's not hard, it's easy, uh, it's just a matter of will. Let's do it." Well, the days of lip service and excuses and putting things off have got yep. to end. We have got to do better as a society, especially as a country. We're we're better than this, David, and we should be doing better. Uh, David Onley, the Absolutely. former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario and a longtime advocate for people with disabilities in this country and is still doing so much great work. Uh, thank you so much for this. Greatly appreciate it, David. Always a pleasure. Thank you. The pandemic has also changed how students learn. Afwa Bond next with the educational challenges facing students with special needs. Students are now back in class and kids across the province now getting into a new normal of back-to-school learning. But there is growing concern that some students in the province won't be properly supported. Those students are students who have disabilities as well as special needs. So joining me today to talk about these concerns is David Lepofsky, Chair of Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, as well as a visiting professor at Osgood Hall Law School. David, thank you so much for your time today. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Okay, so we know that kids are back in school either physically, virtually, or doing a mix of both. But there is concern that there won't be enough support for students with disabilities. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, as it is, um, one out of every six students in Ontario schools um, has special education needs. And those are only the ones we know about. There are more, undoubtedly, who haven't been identified. Uh, And... um, that's a third of a million or more students. Um, And yet the government's overall plan for the reopening of schools does not include a comprehensive plan on how to ensure that that those students, students with disabilities and other special ed needs, um, are safely and fully included in the reopened schools. And if you don't plan for it, there's a high risk you're going to run into problems. And that's because principals or teachers don't want to do the right thing. It's just they're scrambling to deal with a new world uh, uh, in the midst of this pandemic, which is challenging enough um, as it is. But then if you add into it kids who may have uh, need support doing things like social distancing or uh, wearing a mask or can't wear a mask, whatever it may be, um, it makes it even more complicated. Their Ministry of Education has said that they have 
allocated $10 million in additional funding um, to supporting students with disabilities. Uh, David, is that enough? Well, let, let me give you two responses. The first is, it's not just an issue of money. The question is how you use it. And if you leave it to every school board to figure out what are the barriers, what do we need to do for kids who are visually impaired or who are deaf or who have autism or whatever, they're squandering their efforts trying to each reinvent that wheel. That's grotesquely wasteful and completely inefficient, especially in the middle of a pandemic. But let's do some math. We go back to school, let's do some math. Let's take $10 million, which is what the government repeatedly points to to justify its utter failure to announce a comprehensive plan, uh, uh, and let's divide that by the third of a million students we're talking about. And the, the, the grand total is 34 bucks a student. That's not per day. That's not per week. That's not per month. That's it. Now, last week, because uh, the Justin Trudeau government came up with some more money, they, they added another 12 million federal dollars, and even if I added that to the 10 million and did the math, and there's some reason why that would be um, an overstatement, which I can explain, but let's, let's add it in anyway. So maybe we're up to 70 bucks a student. What's that going to buy? Listen, it's helpful to have any new resources, but the kind of resources we need to deal with smaller classes, to deal with helping students ensure they can socially distance. You know, I, w I was talking um, to some uh, parents of kids uh, who are blind or low vision, uh, and one talked about the fact that they, you know, they went to, their, to check out their kid's school, and to mark where it's safe to walk, they've got colored tape on the floor that's not particularly color contrasted so that a kid with low vision could tell where you can safely walk and where you can't. Now, the same tape would cost the same amount if you use a different color contrast. You can't expect every principal to figure this out on their own. The province should be giving detailed directions on this and, and making sure um, it happens. But for kids who can't socially distance on their own, they're going to need added staff support to help them do that um, and that all goes to the issue of being able to be included fully and safely. What are some of the plans and proposals that the Alliance has offered to the government? And has the government even acknowledged or maybe done any consultations with the group? Well, last uh, June, the provincial government, the Ministry of Education, asked for input from the community. On, you know, what do you, what do you need in terms of school reopening? And various organizations, including my coalition, put forward proposals. The, the AODA Alliance, which I chair, we sent in a detailed brief back on the 18th of June, it's over two weeks, it's two and a half months ago, with, with 19 detailed recommendations endorsed by a good number of disability organizations, even endorsed by the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. So the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, Doug Ford's minister, he's got all the advice he's needed. He's not doing it. The first thing the government needs is a comprehensive plan of action focusing on ensuring how they're going to meet the needs of students with disabilities, a provincial plan. So the very first recommendation has not um, been followed up on, or if they do have a plan, they're not telling us and the public. And it's really unfair to everybody, the teachers, to principals, to school trustees, uh, to parents and to students. What are some of the tips that you can provide to school boards that they can use right now to immediately help those students that have special needs? Uh, well, I, I'm going to suggest three things. Uh, first, to school boards, the second, to parents, and the third, to both school boards and parents, to school boards. Um, they should go to aodaalliance.org uh, and look at what we propose to the government, look at what the government-appointed advisory committee recommended to the government, take the ideas there, even if the government hasn't done it or told you to do it, Grab them and use as many of our ideas as we can. They're available. They're free. The work has been done. And by the way, we're not saying school boards aren't doing anything. They're just struggling to figure out what to do in this vacuum. Uh, the second thing is for parents. Parents listening to me, if they have a child with a disability, are going, what do I do? Well, we have a helpful resource available. If you go to our website, aodaalliance.org, and you go to our um, either our What's New page or our education page, you're going to see that series of practical tips for, par tips for parents on what to do uh, to get ready for school reopening uh, in this uh, world of uncertainty. And the third thing I'm suggesting to parents, teachers, 
and principals and everybody involved in the system, we're going to have a lot of problems, unfortunately. It's important to make them public through social media and to uh, notify the government and the mainstream media of what's going on because these stories need to get out as soon as they happen to mount pressure on the provincial government to, to do its job and to do what, sadly, it hasn't done up till now. Great three points that you mentioned there. Um, I wanted to talk about virtual learning and the virtual learning component. How will this component in particular affect students with disabilities and those with special needs? Here's the problem. When the government implemented distance learning, it did not implement a series of uh, effective measures or a plan to ensure that students with disabilities were effectively accommodated so they could be fully included in and fully benefit from distance learning. And there were a whole lot of barriers experienced. And even when teachers worked out creative solutions, the provincial government didn't put in an effective way for those to be shared around the province. We know this because our coalition and others were advocating from late March on that that's what the government needed to do. They needed a plan in the spring to make distance learning effective, and they needed to take action to tear down barriers. I'll give you one example. Doug Ford's Minister of Education repeatedly said that that they have partnered with TV Ontario. That's the government's owned, government-operated public education TV station. And they partnered with them to deliver online courses and content. Well, we checked out their online content, and it turns out it's not properly designed to be accessible to people like me who are blind. Parents, students, teachers with vision loss or dyslexia are going to face significant barriers using that material. That's the government's own responsibility. We told them to fix it then. They still haven't fixed it now, as far as we've heard. Uh, what can parents do to continue to get educators and, and basically the government's attention to really take into account the help that students with uh, special needs will need during the school year? Okay, number one, um, follow us on Twitter, at AODA Alliance. We share a lot of action tips. Number two, sign up to get our email updates because we, we're a central hub of news on this issue. Uh, go to aodaalliance.org and you can sign up right there to get our email updates. And we won't spam you with any advertisements or anything, and we will not ask you for money, believe me. Um, and finally, um, we suggest you check out our virtual town hall that I mentioned about from a couple of weeks ago uh, so that you can uh, get some practical tips on what to do to help your child uh, and to make these issues, uh, raise these issues with the public. Those resources are all there and are all available. Chair of Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, David Lepofsky, thank you so much for your time today. This has been uh, such a needed conversation, and we hope it will continue to be an ongoing conversation until we see change in the classrooms for students with disabilities. Thank you. We really appreciate you covering this topic. After the break, the need for first aid training, especially now. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. First aid training is a really great idea at any time, but particularly these days. Tina Cortez with the skills that could help with an emergency situation at home, work, or play. Jason Coulterman is from St. John Ambulance York Region. Welcome to the feed, Jason. Thank you for having me. For those who may not be familiar, can we start with the work of St. John Ambulance? Can you elaborate a little bit for us? Sure. St. John Ambulance is one of the world's oldest organizations, and they've been serving in Canada since around 1877, uh, providing first aid training to help keep you and your loved ones safe. And then all the training we do helps goes back into the community uh, through our volunteer service programs. Uh, so we have medical responders, youth leadership programs, therapy dogs, and uh, car seat safety clinics. So you mentioned first aid training, and I think that's primarily what we think about when we think about St. John Ambulance. You mentioned some of the programs and services and resources. Could you expand a little bit on those? 
Um, yeah, sure. St. John Ambulance is the industry leader in first aid training. We help set the standard across the country uh, for what is required within a workplace when it comes to first aid and how that should be taught. Um, and then our community service programs are a way of giving back to the community, providing first aid coverage for different events throughout the community, uh, helping our youth uh, develop leadership skills and become better community citizens, um, helping our seniors through the uh, therapy dog program. And they don't just help seniors, they help a lot of other people as well, but the primary focus is helping the elderly and the um, people in hospitals and whatnot to help relieve stress and make them feel better. And then keeping families safe on the road with the car seat program, making sure that you know how to install your car seat correctly uh, and keep the family safe on the road. Is it primarily for groups and companies or can individuals take the courses? Individuals can definitely take the course. Um, we have public courses running almost every single day that you could just sign up either on our website or by calling the local branch. Um, or if you have a larger group, we can do a private class um, for your company or church group or uh, organization as well. Now, obviously, COVID-19 has changed the way everyone works. How do those classes get underway and how are they conducted in the COVID-19 environment? So we had to make a lot of changes to our classes to help make sure that they're COVID safe. Uh, our first priority is making sure everything's safe for everybody. The last thing we want is somebody to become ill or have a problem during one of our classes. Uh, so we've had to reduce the class size, uh, giving everybody that six feet workspace that's dedicated to them without um, interaction with other people during the class. Uh, Removing that interaction with other people meant we had to come up with new ways on how to practice putting slings on, uh, how to practice treating someone with a cut or a broken arm. So we have some tools that we've implemented uh, that have removed the person-to-person -person contact but still teach you those skills. So you can take the courses online or in person? So... Uh, to become certified, everybody has to do a skills assessment, which has to be done in class. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have the blended option where you can do half the course at home at your own pace um, online, and you cover all the theory portion, and then you're just coming in to complete that skills assessment portion, cutting your class time in half. And how long does it take to get certified, whether it's in first aid or CPR or another program? So it really depends on the course you're looking at. You're looking anywhere from one to two days. Um, the two-day course is more in-depth teaching you what needs to be done when medical help is more delayed or maybe you're out camping and you have to transport someone back to a medical facility. It gives you all the tools and training you need there. Uh, and the one-day course gives you everything you need to know living in the areas we are, um, how to help in an emergency uh, where medical help is just around the corner. Now, when I was checking out your website, there was a section about emergency preparedness, and that seemed to really catch my eye, catch my attention, especially now during COVID-19. How does that come into play, and what exactly does it prepare you for? The importance of emergency preparedness really came to light this year with COVID. Uh, we all of a sudden got thrown in a situation where people didn't know if stores were going to be open, if they're going to be able to get the um, stuff that they need for their family. Uh, so we always uh, promote the 72-hour kit, making sure you have everything you need um, to make it 72 hours before uh, you really need to go out and get anything. Now, no one expected us to go four months of the shutdown, um, and unfortunately that did happen, uh, but it really highlighted, do you have enough toilet paper to get you through that 72 hours or even a little bit longer now um, if there is a problem? Do you have water in your house um, and the other um, equipment or supplies you would need to make sure that you and your family are safe during that time. If our listeners want more information about St. John Ambulance, where can they go? 
I, I would direct you to go to our website, sja.ca. There's a lot of resources there. Or contact your local branch. Uh, all the numbers are listed on the website. And in York Region, it's 905-773-3394. That's great. Jason Coulterman from St. John Ambulance, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. Pay next on the feed. We are joined by Deborah Wilson. She is the Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs, Billy Bishop, Toronto City Airport. Thank you for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So we know that the travel industry has been hit particularly hard uh, by the pandemic. How are the operations at Billy Bishop Airport? What exactly is happening yeah. there? Yes, it's, it's been a very dire time for aviation across the world. Um, it's one of the uh, one of the industries that's probably hardest hit. Uh, with regard to Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport, we haven't um, offered commercial service, being Porter Airlines or Air Canada, uh, temporarily suspended uh, passenger service back in March when the pandemic first kind of hit here in mm-hmm. Canada. Um, so currently, we are not offering commercial service out out of the airport. But what that has enabled us to do is really look at our operations so that when the uh, the airlines are ready to start flying again, we're ready to uh, welcome passengers. So what that that has meant is is looking at the journey that a passenger would take upon arriving uh, at Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport, whether it's arriving at Toronto passenger going farther afield or someone arriving at Billy Bishop, we've sort of tracked the journey that they would be on to make sure that we are doing everything possible to ensure uh, a safe a safe travel experience. We're, we're calling this our Safe Travels Program, and it looks at everything from physical distancing and making sure that we've got signage in place to encourage physical distancing. It has been an investment in infrastructure, so we've invested in things like um, electrostatic foggers that that um, remove all of sort of any virus or germ that is on a surface. We've increased and enhanced our ventilation system. So, you know, the, what we have tried to do is make uh, Billy Bishop Airport as safe as possible and, and also make sure that passengers have the peace of mind that when they do come to the airport, um, we are obviously, um, you know, cognizant of what's going on in the real world and making sure that we are doing everything possible to um, to mitigate the impact of, of, of the virus and making sure that people are Wow, it almost sounds like a sci-fi situation when you were talking about the static, whatever that was, the foggers, and I've never even heard of that before, and there are so many different things. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that what I think what we've seen with this virus is it's been, you know, as, as terrible as it's been for many, it's also been an opportunity to innovate. So, I think we've seen that in all industries. I mean, we're all very used to the Zoom calls now and everything else, but within the, you know, the airport world or just even just the public facility world, I think we're all looking at things that are within the physical environment that can be improved upon. And so, things like improved ventilation right. and fogging machines and, and and, um, you know, germ and virus protection and, and all of that kind of thing. So I think, you know, we're going to be in this in this reality for a little bit longer, hopefully not too much longer. Um, you know, but even, even when we're, you know, we have a vaccine and we're all feeling like we're safe again, I think some of the things that we might pick out of this, this experience around keeping ourselves, you know, safe and virus-free are, right. are going to be good lessons to learn. And, and our airport, as I said, has really looked at everything from, you know, pushing elevator buttons and you know how you get from point A to point B. I mean, we're 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 actually in a in a good place as an airport. Mm-hmm. You know, we're located three kilometers from downtown, so you can walk to our airport, you can bike to our airport. When you get to you know the, our doors, you can decide whether you want to take the tunnel across or you can take the ferry. And you know, we're all learning about the advantages of being outside right now right. and and the ventilation that an outdoor environment provides. So you know, if you don't feel comfortable, perhaps taking the tunnel across. Um, you can jump on the ferry, and that's an open-air experience. And then, as I said, within the tunnel itself, we've really looked at enhancing our ventilation to make sure that, um, you know, we're capturing anything that might be in the environment that might not be, you know, that great for passengers. Are are you hopeful and optimistic that that Canadians will feel comfortable on a plane again? I think that... 
they'll get there. Um, it's funny, there was a survey put out last week that indicated that people, um, that Canadians are getting more comfortable with flying. I think what you're going to see is people feeling comfortable flying within Canada before they go, you know, internationally. And, and that's, again, another part where, you know, Billy Bishop is in a good position because so much of our travel is, is domestic or, you know, just a hop over the border. So the border is still closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so people can still be pl- flying within Canada. And I think that's where you're going to see com- people comfortable first. Um, the airlines have really done a great job um, making sure that they're doing everything possible. You know, masks are an absolute requirement, mm-hmm. um, and we're seeing that, you know, with air- airlines refusing to offer travel to passengers who won't, won't wear masks. So, you know, it's, it's a bit cliched at this point, but we are all in this together, and I think um, everyone's doing their part, and I think passengers will get there. Um, I think it's just going to take a little bit more time, and when they do get there, I think the Canadian travel is is going to be the first thing that, that rebounds. Um, but even within Canada, you've got these little bubbles um, that, that are, you know, you have to quarantine if you go to a certain province or things like that. So I think that's one of the first things that has to be resolved is, is allowing for more uh, ease of passage within Canada, and then you know whether whether or not that happens across the various borders. I think that's um, you know that's actually a global discussion. But I think um, you know within Canada, I think it'll rebound first. And are you hearing uh, with your your safe travels program? Have you heard from any passengers about it? Have they welcomed it? Are they curious about it? Yeah, we we have um, we do have some um, activity at the airport. We have you know uh, helicopter uh, tour providers and things like that. So although our bigger commercial carriers, being you know Port Airlines and Air Canada, aren't currently flying, we do have some smaller activity happening at the airport. And you know we have heard good feedback. I think people are feeling safe. I think there's there's a lot of anxiety, and I think some of the anxiety, and we all saw this in the beginning. You know we just don't know what to do. So as a passenger, some of your anxiety comes from the fact that you show up and you don't know what's expected of you. Um, will I be asked to wear a mask? Yes. Will I be asked to do certain things? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying, you know, part of the Safe Travels program is a communications piece to make sure that people understand what, what the expectations of them as a passenger are before they even arrive um, and the kinds of things they will see along the way. And um, so we've heard really good feedback about just being able to communicate the journey. And so we've, you know, we've done videos that bring you from, you know, when you're packing at home until you're on the aircraft and the things that will happen along the way. And, and again, that's just to sort of alleviate some of the anxiety that comes with the unknown. And, you know, we're all, you know, I think the first time we went to a grocery store when, when COVID hit, we were like, what do I do? You know, where do I get my cart? How do I disinfect this? And, and now we're going to start to see that in airports where people are going to just want to know what the expectation of them is. So if listeners want some more information about uh, Billy Bishop Airport or the Safe Travels Program, where can they find it? We have everything on our website. So um, Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport website has videos. It has um, a list of everything that we're doing. It has, you know, questions and answers. Uh, it really is the resource for for, for everything that we're doing. Um, and then there's also an option for, you know, they can they can email us a question and we can we can address their their immediate concern um, or or the question that they might have. So the website's really the best place to go for everything about this program. Awesome, Deborah Wilson, VP of Communications and Public Affairs. Billy Bishop, Toronto City Airport, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.